Hey everybody, happy 2019. I'm Jay and welcome back to the Regeneration Podcast. We hope you had an amazing uh, Christmas holiday and are back at it now with uh, the new year. And with it being the new year, we thought it'd be really appropriate to start the new year off by jumping into a conversation with a good friend of ours um, named Drew Dick. Drew is uh, an acquisitions editor at Moody Publishers. Uh, he's a contributing editor to CT Pastors. His written work's been featured in USA Today, CNN, Christianity Today. He's the author of a bunch of books, and his um, most recent book is a book that just came out, and it's called Your Future Self Will Thank You, Secrets to Self-Control from the Bible and Brain Science. And it's this incredibly practical, inspiring, funny book um, about Drew's own research delving into uh, what started with his own lack of self-control and trying to figure out why that was and falling back into the same old habits and um, the book ends up being this incredible work on um, some really fascinating intersections between what science and the Bible are telling us about self-control and about willpower. And uh, it's just really interesting, but more than being interesting, I think this conversation is going to be really inspiring and challenging uh, as you start the new year. And I'm sure you've got a bunch of resolutions or commitments you've already made. And um, I think this conversation is going to help you further along. So uh, without further ado, here is our conversation with our good friend, Drew Dick. Hey, Drew, how you doing? I'm doing good. Good to be with you guys. Yeah, man. Thanks for giving us some time. Um, you, you've, Your new book, uh, Your Future Self Will Thank You. First of all, like, that that's the dream, right? <laughs> I want I just read the title to the book before the book came out. And I was like, oh man, I want that because when I think about my past self, I'm like yeah, I'm, you know, yeah, like, my past self. I actually believe it or not, just came from an all-you-can-eat Brazilian barbecue place <laughs> where I had told myself I would limit myself to X amount of portions, and obviously I went past that. So help me, Obi Wan, you're my only hope. Right. So your future or I guess present self is not thanking you for that feast. Is that right? No. Yeah. You always regret it. Like instantly. You just let that sit right. for two minutes and then you tell yourself <laughs> some lie like go eat some pineapple. The enzymes are going to help that digest better. You'll be good in 20 minutes. But then you're, you never are. Drew, I'm curious to it. know what was it from your own life? What compelled you? Because you've been working on this for a while. What compelled you to, to I mean, you share a little bit of stories, you know, share a really compelling story about your brother and pretty early in the book, but what, what, what compelled you to write a book like this? Yeah. And actually initially I wasn't trying to write a book. I was just, um, motivated by frankly, uh, uh frustrations, um, being stuck spiritually, uh, and just some of my own self control failures in my own life. And then I started reading up on, um, uh, willpower habits, uh, things like that. And looking at it from a spiritual perspective, I guess one of the most baffling things to me is that how you can have knowledge of God, uh, knowledge of um, you know what you should be doing as far as exercise and eating well, and yet it doesn't translate into different behavior. Yeah. <laughs> it's always been perplexing to me because I've always believed if you just get like, or if you get inspired enough, right? If you listen to the right sermon, then you're just going to go out and crush it and live like this awesome Christian mm. and serve others and and just you know be selfless and and be in scripture and be praying every day. And of course that doesn't happen. So that was kind of the, the, the initial thing, just personal frustration that drove me to the topic. 
Um, so, you know, like I tell people, it's like um, books are written by people who've mastered a topic or by people who desperately need to. And I was mm. certainly in that latter camp. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the, uh, it was, I was, I don't know how old I was, but uh, all the government spending on trying to convince people that drugs were bad. And so it was like, just don't do it. Don't do the drugs. And it was like, we, I mean, at the highest level, the United States government thought, and they spent, I don't know how many hundreds of millions of dollars on those campaigns, um, just trying to say, if we could just teach people the harmful effects of drugs, and people won't do, do drugs, but it's obviously much more complicated than that. Yeah, you're right. And there are similar campaigns with like, eat your fruits and vegetables, right? And they had that whole thing about the food pyramid and how many servings you're supposed to get a day. Right. And it was a huge success because everyone can almost tell you now how many servings you're supposed to get a day. And yet during that same time period, people's eating got worse. Obesity rates got mm. higher. <laughs> so yeah, even when people actually get the information, which is enough of a challenge right there, it doesn't always change the way that we act. Yeah, the only thing that went up was like the market for like powdered fruits and vegetables where you could get five <laughs> servings of broccoli and these three shots of this horrible green powder. Right. And avoiding at all yep. at all cost. Um, talk about, you know, at, at the, at the root of this thing is, um, a sort of fresh perspective on self-control. And I think when, when I hear the phrase self-control, it's, uh, it's sort of a love hate thing, right? On mm -hmm. one hand, it, it's, I love it, uh, from an idealistic perspective. Like, man, it sounds like what all the all the ninjas and the gurus have they have this incredible self control mm -hmm. but it, but then on the other hand i hate it because what it means is you know self control is only necessary for the stuff that like we really enjoy but no is bad for us like brazilian barbecue all yeah. you can eat you know <laughs> yeah. so talk talk about that like why i mean talk about it at a high level why is self control <laughs> such a foundational piece um, not just, not just, I mean, cause this is bigger than you mentioned it already, but it's bigger than just, uh, you know, I want to lose a few pounds, although that's a part of it too, but it gets at even like just the core heart of Christian discipleship to follow Jesus demands a, a, a high level of self-control. So talk about that at a high level. Why is that such a core virtue, such a foundational piece? Yeah, right. Well, and I'd start by saying that to acknowledge that self-control has a bad reputation, I think, in the broader culture, even in the church. I, and I, I felt that when I'd mentioned the, the topic of this book to people because they'd kind of grown, either because it's like, oh, yeah, they realize that it's a struggle for them, too. Um, or there's even like this feeling like if you talk about self-control, it's almost repressive or Victorian or, mm -hmm. you know, you're kind of wagging your finger at someone. Uh, and I think that's a caricature, and and it's also reflective of where we are as a culture. We're far more into self-expression, right? Um, liberating yourself. Every sort of hero story we tell in our, you know, whether it's movies or books, generally someone exerting their will uh, upon the world and um, following their dreams, right? So we don't have many stories about self-control per se. Hmm. But my case for self-control is that ultimately, actually, um, even though it's paradoxical, it brings freedom, right? Hmm. I mean, in any area of life, if you uh, give into your impulses to spend wildly, well, you're going to end up with a ton of debt and credit card debt and, and your options are going to narrow, right? And I think it's like that in any sort of um, area of your life, relationally, spiritually, physically, um, and so, you know, what self-control ultimately brings is freedom. And we know as Christians 
being subject to every impulse and desire that you have is a terrible way to live. That's slavery, right? Mm -hmm. That's the slavery of sin, ultimately. And so um, to your, the second part of your question about how this is integral to the Christian life, uh, it, it's sort of a subset, I would say, of sanctification, mm. um, but it's an important one, right? Because how can you be, I don't know, faithful without self-control? Well, you can't. How can you be generous? Well, you can't because you're going to spend all your money mm. on yourself. How can you be kind? Even the most basic sort of altruism demands suspending your own interests to put others first. Um, and so that'd be my case for it. And one qualification I make, though, I think I have to, because a lot of the literature on self-control is very uh, self-centered. You know, uh, a lot of the stuff I see from a secular perspective is like, okay, this is how you can get rich. This is how you can get famous. Uh, whereas as Christians, we have a different definition. Uh, it's very much um, centered upon uh, being able to serve others, being able to glorify God ultimately with your life. Uh, that's kind of the, the ultimate reason, I would say, for this virtue. Yeah, it's interesting when you were talking about, you know, we kind of joke, joked about the Brazilian barbecue, but really in our culture, it seems as if maybe the only place where there is an allowance for self-control, because as you said, it's seen as bad, it's negative, we're hyper-individualized, we're Americans, we want our freedom, anyone that puts boundaries or restrictions on us, they're the bad guy, but in your personal body, your figure, losing weight, that is the area in our culture that self-control is not only allowed but encouraged. Mm. And it seems like because that's the only area, you get a concentration of focus on that. So it's it's not even mm. comical. It's not even funny when a pastor goes up. Sorry, pastors, if you did this at the beginning of the year. <laughs> but you make a joke about losing weight and I'm going to lose 20 pounds. It's the first sermon of the year because everyone knows it. It's not even funny anymore. So it's right. like all of these longings that, that in a Christian worldview we would say we'd have placed there by God, they're being like a laser beam focused on the only area that's allowed. So we obsess about self-control only with our body and our image, and sometimes with making money, but even that is you're, you're sacrificing just to live more indulgently uh, down the road. And then all the other areas are just let loose. Like the, the inverse of that is like sex ethics or how we spend our money. It's just like no restraint there at all. And so right. uh, it's, it's interesting that you're what your book is doing is making a positive case for self-control in multiple areas, not just yeah. what our culture is focused on. That's, that's a great insight um, about how our culture views this. And um, I'm going to rip this off. This is not my uh, original insight at all. This is uh, my friend Aaron Damiani, who is an Anglican priest in Chicago. Mm -hmm. But he says, he, he's talking specifically about the younger generation. He says he thinks they've flipped sex and food, right? Mm -hmm. Where sex, sexuality, you do what you want. You know, no one has a right to, to say yeah. anything about that. But when it comes to food, man, it better not be GMO. It better be organic. <laughs> it better be healthy. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's fascinating. To the, to the point of, it, it's a moral ethical decision, not yeah. just yes. what's good for you, but it becomes a cultural sin to partake of, this meat offered at this idol at this temple. Yep. How is that sourced? Where did it come from? Is it fair trade? You're absolutely right. It's not just, uh, oh, you got to be healthy to your body, although that's part of it. It's how is your eating affecting others, which I'll admit that that is a good thing to, we should yeah, be absolutely that for sure in everything uh, that we do. But you're right. Uh, all of us, I would say, are somewhat selective in uh, the areas we apply self-control, but I think that's interesting how it's changed in the broader culture. I think you're right too, for pastors, it's like, well, 
it's probably geographic. I think in the South, you could probably get up there and make jokes about your pot belly and it's <laughs> get a laugh or two. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't want to make a big deal out of that. But even in my own life, I've I've always joked about that. I, my, my joke is, oh, the diet starts tomorrow and I'm going to pig out today. Um, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, at, at a certain point, it does actually become something that relates to your growth as a Christian, I think. Your, sure. your ability to say no to things, especially that are going to, you know, um, ultimately compromise your health. Um, and, uh, and there is that kind of blurry boundary where things cross into the sin column, but always tough to say where exactly that is. Yeah. That's uh forget the exact line. There's a Chesterton quote about like, you know, those who do not draw lines will soon f- learn the hard way that there's a need to draw lines. Cause it's like, you know, it's like you got five cookies. At what point did it turn into sin? Yeah. And as what we want to do as like Americans, it's like every, um, junior higher question at a, like a sex sermon series, uh, Q and a, it's like, well, what's the line? Right. How far is too far? Cause I want to know how many cookies I can eat before God says gluttony. And I want to know like how much <laughs> I can make out with my girlfriend before I can't wear my purity ring anymore type, type of thing. <laughs> right. But That's again, cool. we're, fra- you're framing it as a positive Christian ethic, meaning we're doing self-control for what, what is the the end goal of it. What is the purpose for the Christian? Because it's not just merely to have a healthy body or to look good, although those to be healthy is a good thing, but it's more than that. Right. Yeah, exactly. And it's, um, you know, uh, I talked to one um, psychologist, uh, Sarah Snichter was her name. And, um, you know, the way she described it, she made a great point. She said, you know, historically, the church has been the home of the virtues. And of mm. character development. Yeah. Um, but somewhere along the line, of course, we lost that, and now we farm that out to psychology, to sociology, uh, to scientists uh, to tell us how to change. Um, but the, the problem with that is, um, when it comes to developing self-control and willpower and those things, a huge part of it is having some ultimate purpose for the change that you're trying to make. A telos, right? To use the, yeah. the big mm. uh, word for that. Um, and that's what uh, your faith provides. That say life hacks or psychological information as helpful as it is does not and you know researchers even talk about this there's an incredible power to what they call sanctified goals so goals that have a spiritual significance attached to it so if i'm trying to lose weight because i want to fit into my old pants or look good in the mirror i'm not going to be as successful as if i kind of go well you know what uh god's given me this body he's called he has this calling on my life and i'm going to be able to do that better if i'm healthier or if I want to, you know, be an example for my children. I mean, if you have these kind of bigger overriding yeah. purposes for why you're doing what you're doing, you're going to pursue those goals much more effectively. The yeah. research is very clear on that. Um, so that those are always interesting to me to kind of see those findings. Yeah, what's uh, one thing that I've been just super fascinated lately is just the the kind of absence or the vacu- vacuum of meaning, purpose, and transcendence in our in our culture, and that ties in directly what you're talking about. It's interesting. Um, a Christian may have trouble um, shedding off the holiday weight, da, 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 and and in a sense, like yeah, be more disciplined, da, da, da. But they're also simultaneously not placing transcendent, ultimate meaning upon their body. Where you know people who are at the gym day in and day out and clearly look like they have the the habits just to have a perfect body but in a sense you've talked with them in the gym like gym culture this isn't a knock on on anyone in particular but for some people the reason why they're able to lose the weight is because that body has literally become 
their transcendent value. Their that's right. their it becomes the god, yeah. and therefore they actually are able to do it because, in a sense, they're peering, pursuing their god and worshiping that. And right. so, uh, it's you know the same thing of someone who's able to climb the corporate ladder really quick. It's like yes, that's a successful habit you've developed, but it's also become your functional god. Um, and so the Christian needs to somehow find ways to do these things that correspond to our belief in, in the one true God, because ultimately he does want us to have these good habits. Yes. No, you're, that, that's a great point. Um, early on in the book, um, this was something I ran into. I'm like, okay, I, I could write and tell him blue in the face about self-control, how to develop it. But the conversation is incomplete if you don't talk about, okay, why are we developing self-control mm, in the first yeah. place, right? Exactly. Um, and, and if you're putting kind of the wrong thing as your, your uh, God, which is essentially making it an idol, um, even if you are successful in attaining it, it's ultimately not helping you, <laughs> right? If you make your own success or if you just want self-control so you can be the, the most powerful, rich, best-shaped person out there and look down upon others, well, from a Christian perspective at least, uh, that's not self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Uh, if you are putting yourself or anything other than God at the top of the totem pole, in Christian terms, you've already failed the first self-control test, which is to put yourself aside, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, with it can be really almost a different conversation, um, you know, when you're when you're talking about self-control in a sort of a secular sense, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to self-control as a Christian. Mm -hmm. Very different sort of virtue. In fact, you look at Galatians 5, where self-control is listed as a fruit of the Spirit. All those virtues, well, they're not even virtues per se. They're like more like states of being, you know, mm -hmm. like peace, joy, love, gentleness. Um, they're all really crucial for interpersonal harmony. I think that's kind of what connects them. Um, and, of course, self-control is too. Mm -hmm. So anyone that grabs self-control and uses it as sort of a, a means by which to pursue their selfish agenda is mm -hmm. really missing the point uh, when it comes to at least self-control from a biblical perspective. Yeah, I, you know, I just recently saw this quote, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase the quote because I don't remember it exactly, but um, super popular first chef and then, you know, television personality, um, Anthony Bourdain, who, who just recently passed away, um, killed right. himself, suicide. Uh, shortly after he died, people started posting these quotes, this like really well-known quote of his, where he said something along the lines of, you know, your body is not a temple, it's a playground or something like that, or a roller coaster or mm -hmm. something. Or, no, 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 he said, your body is not a temple, it's an amusement park, so just enjoy the ride. And I thought, you know, think about the sad irony of it. Here's, you know, you're you're posting someone's quote as a sort of marker of their legacy, someone who just ended their own life. And um, and the thing you remember about what they said, which has become, as you guys are talking about, in some ways, the ethos of our day. Right. That right. Uh, and, and the sadness of it, if you really read between the lines, is like, well, that that's really, really depressing in the sense that if the mm. point is just enjoy the ride. There is no telos. There's no great ultimate end to which. So then you think about how that plays out in our everyday lives, not just with our physical bodies, but with um, with what we do in our embodied state as human beings. It just becomes mm -hmm. like, what is the point, right? And and yeah. uh, Bourdain, you know, his life, I think, sort of in some ways um, illustrates that. You know, I, I'd be curious to know, Drew. I think. 
up to this point, probably most most of the people who listen to our podcast, not everyone, but most of them are, are followers of Jesus. So I think they're probably tracking. Um, but but maybe the question might be bub- bubbling up a little bit like, well, okay, Drew, you've mentioned, you know, sanctification and maybe transformation is a word that we've heard and, and change. And even in secular circles, I think it's pretty you know, well-received the idea that in order to experience real transformation, we've got to have some self-control and, um, you know, exercise right and eat right and think right and all those things. But what would you say to those who are listening who might be asking the question, well, Drew, I thought, I thought it was like God who does the transforming in me, right? Like, is, right. don't I, just as a Christian, don't I just give myself to the Lord and open myself up and say, man, it's just, it's all grace and God's going to do the work. And so I'm not understanding why the necessity of a whole book on what I'm supposed to do, self-control. What, what would you say to, to that yeah. person? Yeah, and that's, that's not just a hypothetical question. I've, I've gotten um, uh, some pushback already. I was going to say, this. you probably got some hate mail already because of, because of that <laughs> yeah. issue. Wouldn't call it quite hate mail, but yeah, one guy said um, today online, uh, said the Holy Spirit's the only one who can give self-control. You don't get that from a book. Another person said, you got the wrong concept, brother. It is, uh, you can never control yourself. Uh, it's spirit control, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're get, kind of getting this this idea that, hey, listen, uh, the human element in this, uh, at least if you're doing it right, uh, shouldn't be involved. What I find in Scripture is a little more complicated than that. Uh, I would never want to talk about self-control in a Christian sense without talking about divine empowerment, because that's just silly, right? I mean, I was just talking about it's a fruit of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And of course, Paul is invoking a metaphor there, just like a plant is connected to the ground and needs that nourishment in order to grow fruit. In the same way, we need to be connected to God in order to see these virtues flourish in our lives, including self-control. So, and all throughout Scripture, of course, you can't escape that, the, um, the, the empowerment of the Spirit, and that's good news for me, someone who struggles with self-control, because I go, man, I'm not in this alone. God comes along and and promises to empower me. And in, in scripture after scripture, you know, I think of work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is Christ that works in you. Well, Christ is working in you, and yet you're working out your salvation. Mm-hmm. There's a place for human agency and divine empowerment. And we like to set them up as sort of antithetical mm-hmm. and insist that you have to choose one. Well, scripture seems to be pretty comfortable with them working in harmony. Mm-hmm. Um, and my thing is that, man, don't, you don't, you, you strive with the Spirit instead of against the Spirit. Um, and and uh, we're promised that, that the Spirit will empower us when we do that. Um, so I don't see the contradiction there. Um, but yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't want to say this is something where you can just bootstrap your way into looking like Jesus, because <laughs> um, we, we've tried that and we know that's um, not right. At the same time, I find it really interesting that the word strive, for instance, has become such a dirty word in Christian circles. Like if you walk into like a like a Bible study and say, you know what, guys, I'm really striving in my spiritual life. People will be like, oh, that's terrible, man. Uh, we'll pray for you. You know, and, and they'll they'll kind of encourage you to let go and let God or some cliche. But the truth is, all throughout Scripture, strive, and it comes from the same root word as agony in Scripture, is mm. a positive. It's not a pejorative. Mm. And we're encouraged to strive for godliness. I mean, you read Paul, you know, he says, yeah. I strike a blow to my body, I throw off everything that encumbers me, I run the race. I mean, all that language that we just kind of sidestep and say, Jesus, take the wheel, it sounds spiritual, but it's BS, it's not scriptural. Mm. So anyway, don't get Yeah, there's a, there's a, <laughs> an unhealthy fear of 
legalism or works still sneaking up in Protestantism at large. And so um, we kind of pat ourselves on the back by just the more we can talk about grace and how I'm nothing, I, I have n- nothing to do with anything. And in a sense, we would all probably affirm that. Absolutely. It's all, it's grace. Um, but we're overlooking. I mean, you really can't read a single book of the New Testament and not find that type of language. And the language is sometimes so, it's even harder than just striving. It's no, he do, he who does not persevere to the end shall not be saved type of right. thing. It's like, what? That's Jesus. Yeah. Just, you know? So yeah. there is That's a sense. That's so well in which, said. You're absolutely right. And especially for Protestants, because we are rightly uh, yeah. allergic to legalism and we don't want to lapse into that. Um, and I think it's a, it's a theological category confusion, too, because yeah. when it comes to salvation, amen, we don't do a thing. We don't chip in 10%, okay? Yeah, God yeah. saves us. Um, but when it comes to sanctification, there's a role for effort. Yeah. you got to roll up your sleeves a little bit. It's not just uh, passivity equals spirituality. Yeah, and yeah. legalism being more of a external religious action done to try to justify oneself rather than a pursuit of holiness. And somehow we thought any type of pursuit of holiness is part and parcel with the legalism that maybe Paul would be addressing. One One of the things kind of going off Jay's question was, okay, you've done all the research on what the science says and the psychology says, does it match up with the Bible? Is it, are they different? Is there overlap or are they just, Hey, this is a, first century Jewish collection of documents and they're really, there's really no overlap. So is there a connect between what the Bible is saying about self-control and your research? There really is. And of course I'm going to say that, right? Cause I'm a follower <laughs> of Jesus <laughs> uh, with a high view of scripture, but no, it, it's, it's remarkable. I mean, okay. For, for instance, you know, uh, about 20 years ago, researchers find out something fascinating about willpower, basically that it's a finite resource. It runs out experiment after experiment has shown that people, you know, the longer they resist temptation, the weaker they get. And as Christians, of course, that's not surprising because it jibes very well with what Scripture teaches us about our nature, that we're finite, fallen creatures. Um, It's probably why the Bible encourages us to flee temptation rather than stand and resist it. You know, Jesus says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Mm. So, I mean, there, there are all those kind of points of agreement. And even when it comes to the research on habits, you know, part of like what I was talking about earlier, how you can have the right information in your head and yet fail to uh, translate that into action is explained by habits um, because, uh, and you may know if you've read any of the research on habits, uh, we, we may go into a situation with the purpose of acting a certain way, but nine times out of 10, actually probably even more, we will default to our habits, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. So I can go to a restaurant and go, you know what, I'm going to get a salad and a Diet Coke, right? Oh no, sorry, Diet Coke's bad for you now. Salad <laughs> and water. <laughs> But if I've gone to that restaurant all my life and I get a big bacon cheeseburger, like you almost find yourself just ordering it, right? Because it's habit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's the same sort of dynamic when it comes to spiritual things. Like for a long time, um, every morning I'd roll out of bed and on my nightstand is my, my phone. I'd swipe it and just start looking at social media. Is it too bad? But I, I didn't want to start my day that way. Um, I was like, no, I want to start my day by reading some scripture right off the bat. It's just a far more peaceful, uh, better way to start. But I couldn't because I was like conditioned. I just mm. like start to twitch if I try to do anything but check social media first thing. Um, so I eventually had to kind of like get rid of the phone, like put it on the other side of the room and put my big black analog Bible <laughs> right there and reach for that instead, right? Because I was conditioned to kind of get some information from my nightstand when I first woke up. Mm. So understanding how habits work and how we default to them and then being able to like, uh, you know, replace bad habits with good ones. Um, and of course, like 
the uh, Bible doesn't use the word habit all the time. It does a few times. But you, when you look at all the rituals and the traditions and the feasts in Scripture, and even in, you know, how, even if you're in a low church setting, the repetition, right? Yeah. Or if you're in a higher church setting and you use liturgy, and you think, why do we do this all the time? Why do we come and say truths we already know and sing songs we've already heard and sung? Well, that's the way we're wired. We need those rhythms in our life in order to instill um, the beliefs, even if we believe them and translate them into our lives. So there's just a lot of interesting parallels, I'd say, between the research on self-control and what you see in Scripture and in the life of the church. Yeah, that you know, to sort of just briefly rabbit trail off of that, we we had. Um, you should talk about your book. He said, "Analog, go analog with the Bible." No, oh, I know Drew and I have had many. I was I was throwing it out there. For <laughs> Anal- <you, man. laughs> we do a plug for Jake Kim's this book is, out uh, doing like no, a year. This is about Drew. <laughs> right. book. We, were, we were talking about we were talking to uh, Rick McKinley, who's in your neck of the woods. Oh yes, he and, sure is. I and love he Rick. was yeah. telling on this podcast uh, a couple episodes ago. He was telling us this fascinating story. He was at this gathering. Of of um, religious leaders from a bunch of different religious faith traditions. He was the lone sort of Protestant evangelical Western representative. And he said one of the things that really blew his mind was that each leader started going around one by one and started talking about very specific practices of their faith. And Mm. by specific, he meant like hyper-specific like three times a day, we face this direction and we say these prayers. And we, and when I say we, I mean all of us, like the collective family of our religious tradition and stream, you know? And he was telling us that it was just so crazy to him because he could not think of anything that right. like as a, as a Western evangelical Protestant that he couldn't think of anything that he was so rich and so consistent and it blew his mind and it, it sort of changed the way he started thinking about what they were doing at Imago and they started um, implementing he, he has this fascinating thing about what they're doing with the creeds uh, at Imago now and it just reminds me of that what you're saying you know we we can almost parse that out into micro personal, uh, everyday sort of reality of our individual lives as followers of Jesus. Like, what are those practices, right? Habit right. sounds like a pretty modern idea or word, but the reality is, like, the Christian tradition has always had, and even before it, the Jewish tradition has always had a very set, sort of rich, robust history and and tradition of practices, you know, talk about all of the different dates on the calendar, both Christian and Jewish. And we've just lost that, you know, for us, we've got, hey, go to Easter service and then, you know, Christmas gathering, which one are you going to go to? And then then maybe Mother's Day, you know, like you've got little things like that, but we've lost the richness of of that. And, And so maybe talk a little bit to those who are leading and serving in churches. What can we do? Um, to instill more of this, like get our people thinking along the lines of habits, practices, uh, which then tie into self-control and and reorienting our lives in such a way that there are some rhythms now that help us shape or reshape who we're becoming in Jesus. Yeah, that's good. Um, and that's a fascinating story about, about Rick. And I think it's... Um, you know, we actually sometimes, as Western Protestants especially, we almost pride ourselves in not having those things. Exactly. Right? We're ahistorical. Oh no, we're not into these dead rituals, right? Yeah. We, <laughs> and it's so funny because we still have our rituals—three songs yeah. and a sermon. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and then of course go to the same restaurant after uh, church. Right. But um, 
Yeah, and, and, and of course, um, I'm sure you've read you know, some of Jamie Smith's stuff on uh, the liturgies of the secular, which is so good, uh, because we're, we're always being conditioned. We're, we're habitual creatures by nature. Um, it's just who's doing the conditioning? <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, is it Silicon Valley? Is it, uh, or is it the church and scripture and the community of the saints, right? So I think that's the first emphasis, is just to be uh, aware of that, not only individually, but corporately. What kind of rhythms are we building into the life of our faith? And then, and this sounds old-fashioned, and I, I, it's a harder sell all the time. But man, church attendance is important. Yeah. Um, and I get it; it's hard. Um, you know, I, I think I've got this right. The numbers might be a little off, but about 20 years ago, the average church attender went to church 3.2 times a month. Yeah. And it's yeah. down to like 1.8 now. Yeah. Uh, you might want to double check that. But anyway. That's the trend, and we know why. I mean, it's like uh, sports on weekends, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but that's actually one of the habits that Scripture names is mm-hmm. do not neglect the gathering together, the habit of gathering together. Um, and that's so crucial now. And and to make that a physical gathering, right, is, is so essential. Um, and, of course, every tradition has different rhythms. But I'm in the camp that says, hey, don't be allergic to... Uh, a little bit of liturgy and introducing the creeds that attach you to the historic church and give you yeah. the broader view and kind of fix that chronological snobbery uh, yeah. that we have, especially in the West. And don't pretend you're ahistorical or you're the Christians who finally got it right. Um, uh, so that's huge. And then I think someone's going to have to, oh, this is where I'm coming back to, <laughs> to you, Jay, because I know you're working on this project, but someone's going to have to address the technological aspect to all this. I have a chapter in the book talking about this, but it deserves a lot deeper treatment um, because we are so uh, conditioned by our technologies. Um, I think we need a new generation of leaders who are thinking critically about this, right? Whether it's ditching your devices at the door before going into a sanctuary or, or having a rule of life to deal with those things, that's gonna be huge. Taking a quick break here from our conversation with Drew to tell you about our partners in ministry. Um, Western Seminary, our partner from day one, uh, located in Portland, Oregon, with campuses all over the country and online presence all over the world. Um, If you are looking for a master's degree in theology or counseling or a variety of other topics western seminary is uh, totally worth checking out incredible faculty some of the best and brightest minds in the world of theology and counseling and pastoral ministry that there are out there um, so check out western seminary at westernseminary.edu and if you're looking for an undergrad degree our partners um, since very early on in this regeneration journey have been eternity bible college and we tell you about them all the time but an incredible opportunity to get your bachelor's degree in a wide variety of theological and biblical um, majors and uh, fields of of study. And uh, one of the coolest things about Eternity is that they're really committed to helping their students graduate debt-free. So they've got an incredible program at um, an unbelievably affordable rate and a bunch of assistance opportunities as well. So uh, they too, like Western, have um, 
locations sort of all over the country, but a really strong online presence. Um, and their main campus is located in Southern California. So check out Eternity Bible College just at eternitybiblecollege.com. And of course, last but not least, as we always tell you, please stay connected to us on our website. Um, we're posting new resources there, uh, new events that um, will be will be happening in the coming months. Uh, so um, it's regenerationproject.org. Uh, stay connected with us. We want this to be more than just resources that you access, but really, hopefully, eventually, um, communities that you can build with other like-minded folks who are leading and serving in the church and trying to reach new generations. So, um, yeah, we're, we're really glad you're listening and a part of this journey with us. So go to our website and stay connected with us there. And back to our conversation with Drew. You had uh, maybe something super practical for the listeners. You had mentioned a while back, I wanted to come back to it, just about how your self-control is finite and limited. So if you're using it up, you can run out. So like in a real practical sense, your it's willpower. like your willpower. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, so it's like, you know, I resisted eating this. Then I resisted this temptation at work. And now I'm with my girlfriend. We're not married and we're trying to stay pure and keep it clean. Is all of that stuff related? So am I more likely to slip up than sexual temptation because I've been using up all my willpower to fight off X, Y, Z, or is there no relationship? And if there is, what are what are the practical things that help us as believers make sure our willpower is, is doing the right thing in alignment with Christ? Yeah, they're all related. Um, and willpower, um, it, there are a lot of things that drain willpower. Resisting temptation is one. Decision-making is another. Interpersonal conflict is a huge uh, drain on willpower, mm. um, even not getting enough sleep. So you got to be aware of those things. Right. And if you've gone through, if you, I mean, and this explains a lot of behavior when you think back on your own yeah. life. Like, why is it that after a hard day at work, uh, sometimes I'm a jerk to my kids, right? Or I snap at my spouse or something. It's like, well, all the interpersonal conflict and decision making and exerting yourself and focusing and stuff like that. I'm not trying to excuse it, right? But just to be aware of that. And before you're facing a difficult situation, say, or temptation, to make sure that you're you're being replenished. Um, and that's not, I mean, that's just, I think, wise uh, to do that. And I think you even see it in scripture. I think of the story of Elijah. He has this great showdown with mm-hmm. the prophets of Baal. And then right after he goes and cries in a cave, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you'd think he'd be out celebrating. Um, but, and it's a little anachronistic to apply, but I'm thinking, you know what, his willpower is low after that huge standoff. Right. And I've seen this in my own life. Um, I, I was talking to some pastors, um, two days ago and one of them said he was part of this group, um, where they were talking about, uh, the times that they've given into porn. Hmm. And he said that one guy said, you know, this is the terrible thing to confess, but it was after speaking at this conference. Um, when I do that, it seems like right after, and mm. is it spiritual warfare or what? And then another person's like, same here. You know, right after doing some awesome ministry thing, I'm going and looking at porn online. And it just makes a lot of sense because you're putting yourself out there. You're you're um, you're expending a lot of willpower, and that's when you're vulnerable. So you've got to be really careful with that. Another practical thing, and this relates back to what I was saying about habits, the best way to use willpower by far, because you have that finite amount of it and you want to invest it wisely, is to create new habits. Because what habits do, they're automatic routines in your life, and when you're in that automatic routine, you don't have to expend willpower. So a guy that gets up and runs five miles a day, 
he doesn't have to sit there and slap himself in the face and go, I'm going to get psyched up. I need to get out there. Yeah, come on. He just does it, right? I don't know because I'm not that guy. But I'm. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard, yeah. I've had friends. I saw, I saw some tweets on it. Sounds like it works. <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, it's, yeah. it's automatic at that point. So what it does is having that habit actually conserves your willpower hmm. um, uh, to um, do other things. Now that's. Uh, Okay. That's super interesting because then what, what we're doing now is we're talking about a life that's you get better sleep. Let me backtrack. You get better sleep. You eat better. Um, you be, have better relational habits. You don't let relational conflict hang on. You actually deal with them. You're doing all these things. And then when you come home from work, you're more likely, it doesn't guarantee, but you're more likely to be a better husband, a, be, a better father. A better friend and so we do these things not just uh, going back to the beginning not just to elevate the self but when we're putting positive good habits in our life something as simple as getting enough sleep we're mm. more likely to be more of a Christ-like example mm. I mean, that doesn't get any more practical like, there you go that's for our listeners that's super eat like not easy but super easy to understand but incredibly practical get some better sleep deal with some relational conflict when you're stressed at work acknowledge it and it actually will have a direct impact on how you live your life in relationship to others i mean that's Absolutely. incredible yep. yeah you get more sleep <laughs> one other interesting thing about habits you know there, there's really only as far as i know one habit that is scientifically proven to boost your willpower and that's praying Hmm. Even for as little as five or ten minutes a day. Hmm. I mean, there are scholarly um, studies about how prayer um, buffers ego depletion, which is a fancy way of saying it actually guards against your willpower being drained. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, there, there are enormous practical benefits just to spending a little time in prayer. Of course, as Christians, we're after just the in intrinsic as well as the extrinsic benefits. We want to connect with God. Yeah. But at the same time, you just realize the... So many of the commands in Scripture, pray without ceasing, yeah. are incredibly wise when it comes to just making your life healthier. Yeah, yeah we're seeing an uptick in that, even with like um, a guy like Sam Harris, one of the world's leading atheists, is talking about, med he has a meditation app, hmm. and yeah. he's all about, he's written books on it, and so even without the kind of the Christian worldview, the belief in the supernatural, the belief that we actually are communion with the living God, the act of that five to 15 minutes kind of plugging out from everything and just focusing that in and of itself charges your body, which is, in, which is incredible, incredibly fascinating that we're seeing it on platforms from atheists talking about it. Right. Yeah. It's like, Sam, stay in your lane, man. It's true. <laughs> <though>. no, <laughs> yeah. You're right. We're spiritual creatures and it's like, yeah, we need this. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Drew talk a little bit to the person who's listening, who, um, first of all, it, it, what a timely book, uh, and I don't just mean the beginning of the year, but I mean the, the, the day and age in which we find ourselves, where um, there is so much that is depleting not only our willpower, but competing uh, for our affection and our attention, which then demands even more self-control. It's just such a timely book. Talk to those who are listening who, one, they should check out the book, uh, but two, you know, just speak from a, cause you have a heart, a pastoral heart for people. And I think reading the book, that heartbeat really comes through you. The, the desire is not just to put out really insightful, interesting information, but it's to really help. Um, so maybe if you could just share a couple words of, of sort of 
pastoral encouragement for those of us who are just who are starting the year. It's 2019. Here we go. Maybe this is the year that that actual change, transformation uh, might actually happen in my life. Just talk to those of us who are listening who are longing for that um, with some encouragement. Yeah. Well, two things I'd like to say, I think, is uh, the first thing is your self-control can improve. And that sounds maybe really obvious, but I think sometimes when you've failed in multiple areas over and over again, year after year, <laughs> seeing your resolutions unravel, yeah. stuck spiritually, it can be very discouraging. Mm -hmm. And um, the truth is you can change, and not just because the research shows that there are ways to change, but we see it all throughout Scripture. You know, my favorite uh, character in Scripture is Peter. And when I look, especially when I was researching this book, I looked at Peter's life. I'm like, there's a guy with low self-control. I mean, he had these mm -hmm. great, he had the right convictions. You know, he wants to walk on water, but then he sinks. He says to Jesus, I'll never deny you. And then he denies him, right? He had the right convictions, but he couldn't follow through. And the beautiful thing is, though, when you read his letters uh, that he writes, which are about 20 years later, so he's a different guy. Um, he's this pillar of the church. Mm -hmm. He's writing these warm, fatherly, affectionate letters, telling people to grow in godliness um, and he's finally become the rock that Jesus saw in him. Um, so I think that's cool. It's just inspiring when you see um, people like that uh, in Scripture that really change, that you can too. The second thing is, you know, don't let guilt get the better of you because it is so easy to, to have these w willpower failures and to beat yourself up. And it's not only, you know, theologically weird, but it's just counterproductive. You'd think maybe that guilt is the key to motivating yourself to better works. It's just the opposite. Hmm. Um, it, you know, it's cool. Researchers talk about, um, there's actually diet researchers that coined this phrase, uh, the, uh, the fresh start effect. And that is this idea that when people perceive that they have a blank slate, um, they, their behavior actually improves, right? That's why sometimes it's the beginning of the year or a birthday or something where people will make real change in their life. Um, there's an opposite sort of thing they talk about, and that is the what the hell effect. And that means I messed up. What the hell? I'm going to go all out. I'm going to binge. I'm going to sin more. I'm going to whatever. Right? So guilt fuels worse behavior. Forgiveness and grace actually is the fuel for better behavior. Hmm. Wow. And we know that as Christians, but it's a good reminder to don't, don't go to the guilt when you mess up because you're going to mess up. Keep diving back into grace, reminding yourself that you're forgiven. And that's going to fuel better behavior in the long run. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks. Yeah, I, I can't encourage people to check out the book enough. So um, let people know where they can find uh, this book. Um, you've, this is, you've written several books. So um, let people know where they can find not just this book, but the rest of, of your work. Uh, not just books, but you write sort of all over the place and put out content. So um, where can people find you and, and access some of your resources? Yeah, it's this little website called Amazon.com. <laughs> little boutique. <laughs> right, little boutique Seattle publisher. No, uh, yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Yes, you're triggering all, triggering all the bad habits because they just see the Amazon Prime thing pop up right there. One night, free shipping. It'll know, the boom. book will be there boom. tomorrow. People go right now. One click settings are on. You can purchase it. It's on sale because it just came out. Buy the book. Right. And I love the one click purchase for your convenience. I'm like, oh, I'm sure, Jeff. So that's for my convenience. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's one bad habit I'm totally endorsing if they want to buy my book, by the way. So yeah, Amazon or wherever. Lifeway actually has a lot in stock, I know. Um, uh, I'm on Twitter too much. 
That's one of my bad habits. So if you want to connect with me there, it's just my name, Drew Dick. D-Y-C-K is how you pronounce my last, or spell my last name. Um, and I'm in Vancouver, not BC, even though I'm Canadian originally, but I'm now down in the States, south of the border. I'm not going back. Yes. Got three anchor babies. Anyway, <laughs> um, I am in Vancouver, Washington, which is just across the river from Portland. So if you want to just drop by and hang out. There I you go. Love, There's an open invitation from Drew yep. Dig to come to Anytime. Vancouver and hang out. Anytime, man. So. <laughs> you can hold my baby. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. Drew, mm. we uh, we so appreciate you and um, your approach to things, and you bring uh, a fresh perspective all the time in some of the work that you do and have been such a champion you, for guys. the church and for church leaders, and that means a lot to us as church leaders. So, um, yeah, you're having great impact. So really appreciate you. Thanks so much. Thank you guys so much. This was fun. 